You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HateMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Dinosaur. 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 Welcome to Necropolis. We are back in action. I want to thank Tyler very, very much for filling in for two episodes to Samath and the uh, Sacramento episode. So, Tyler, thank you a million for taking the reins and keeping this podcast going while I've been busy with other things and having some adjustments to my day-to-day life with the new position and all that. Thank you, Tyler. You're very welcome. More than happy to do so, but I'm also very happy to have you guys back. Oh, you're so sweet. And we have the infamous Shelly. He is Papa Shelly or Father Shelly now. So how does it feel to be responsible for another human being, Shelly? Exhausting. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So if you hear. That's all I got for you right now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So um, he's been dealing with the diapers and the vomit and the crying and all that for a couple of weeks now, but. He does have a, a nice-looking uh, son, baby, now. So, yes, today we are talking about Slayer. Um, we haven't done a, a focus episode in a while, and I thought Slayer would be pretty good to just jump into since I think we're all familiar with Slayer and don't need to do much research on them because, you know, they are one of the most popular metal bands ever. So uh, just an antidote, I got into Slayer back when I was uh, 10, 11 years old, right after I got into Metallica, I was listening to that Slayer, and uh, uh, Rain and Blood was uh, arguably the, the album I listened to the most back then, I was, but now as I'm older, I, I really don't listen to Slayer that much anymore, but uh, I, I did revisit some of the older material and came to the conclusion, it's like, yeah, Rain and Blood is good. There, there's you know a few really really strong tracks on there of course everyone knows uh angel of death and the song raining blood um which i believe those are in guitar hero which just made slayer way more popular than they deserve to be but uh um i did revisit uh the older albums and the newer albums too because i was just curious how big that new metal influence was with their later output um but uh yeah i was listening to uh, hello waits and uh, back when I first got into Slayer, back when I was a kid, it's like I appreciated Hello Waits, but it seemed really like the production and uh, the riff craft seemed really stuck in like a time capsule in the uh, like 80s thrash movement where um, it was just like a snippet of it could only have been created at that point in time. Um, and but the, the songs themselves for that that album, um, they're I think they're a little bit more dense with composition. Like the the riffs have more logic and the, there is a flowing nature to them, and the, it seems more complete to me. Whereas Rain and Blood, um, there are some aspects where it, it feels a little disjointed because obviously it's bookended by two of their most popular songs, and it's like you know there's the song Jesus Saves and things like that where, um, is you know. Elevates the album as you're listening to it a little bit, but it just feels really bookended. Whereas Hello Waits feels like a great just experience all the way through it. Um, so I would say uh Hello Waits is probably my favorite Slayer album now. Um, but then again, it's like I'm more into the the extreme death and black metal now, and I really don't 
spend much time with Slayer. I've never been inclined to see them play live. Uh, it just looks like this way too big with way too many normal people um, that may not really understand metal uh, on a, a, a really deeper level. It's more there, you know, it's like, oh, yes, I saw Slayer in South Park one time, you know, things like that where um they may just have surface level interpretation of what slayer is and of course you know the satanic imagery and all that and it was in the hot topic back when i was a kid i remember seeing a whole bunch of slayer stuff in hot topic as well as obituary oddly enough but uh um so uh, i'll start with shelly uh, what are your general thoughts on slayer yeah it's interesting because like i definitely concur that like the hello waits sort of the in from showing of mercy into hello waits is like the um, peak of Slayer's like achievements, in my view, especially Hell Awaits. It kind of combines the elements of thrash, such as they were in the mid '80s, with kind of like merciful fate, uh, sense of like theatrics and occultist kind of melodrama, um, and that comes across really well in Hell Awaits. And the songs are much longer, so they do kind of really kind of unfurl their riffcraft. Whereas on Rain and Blood, it almost Aside from, yeah, the two book-ended tracks, it almost feels like a grindcore album. The songs just blitz by one after the other in really short snippets of, like, hardcore punk-influenced, like, metal. Um, and I think that's really... The two albums kind of really define the two elements of Slayer, the two kind of Slayers, if you will, because there's the Slayer that exists in, the, like, the popular zeitgeist, as you mentioned, things like South Park and the fact that they're a bit of a meme now as well. And that's kind of them as as an artifact of like American culture more generally, sort of the nihilistic kind of parody, satirical kind of side of American culture and Slayer kind of slip into that. And I kind of associate that more with like 90s Slayer when they kind of attracted a lot of more, I don't know what you call them, Pantera fans, like just bold, tattooed, very muscly, macho guys who were there to sort of, jump in the mosh pit, thrash around for a bit and listen to some noisy music. And then you get the other Slayer, which is the metallic Slayer, the Slayer of Shown of Mercy and Hell Awaits, where they, and to some extent South of Heaven as well, where they have a more elaborate approach to composition, um, maybe some sort of catchier riffs here and there, but they sort of tap into the occult as well. And like that's also an indicative of how well someone understands Slayer because like throughout the 1980s they slowly shed their references to satanism and like theology and went more quote-unquote realism in a realist direction with their lyrics and people often say that as a sign of maturity when in fact the opposite is true in a lot of ways um because they kind of just became a one-trick pony after that and sort of kind of played up to this reputation of like the the ultimate like nihilistic american thrash band and I think those two those two sides to Slayer really kind of like they really demonstrate how well someone understands Slayer and where they're coming at Slayer from. Are they coming at it from a, a non-metallic background, maybe sort of through the groove metal, new metal kind of oeuvre, or are they coming at it from a more classical metal background where they're more interested in those elongated narrative structures and the the exploration of like Satanism and theology as sort of metaphors for darker aspects of human psyche and so on. Um, but I'm sure we'll get into that a bit further. But yeah, that's my sort of general take on like Slayer, the 
the entity as they stand in in the sort of popular imagination now. I see. Yeah, yeah, definitely can you know chime in on the lyrical content. And when I was a kid, those lyrics was like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? When I first got into, you know, as you know, 10, 11 years old, I'm like, I was used to like you know Metallica lyrics, which tried to be a little poetic here and there, or have some deeper meaning. Whereas Slayer was just matter of the fact, you know, right in your face. You know, here's you know the the dark and bleak reality. You know, of course, there was the a lot of the satanic um you know just i i feel like you know you know you listen to you know a lot of it's just posturing i think honestly like with the satanic imagery and you know like just metal as fuck and uh just you know just hell satan and die by the sword and all of that and but i distinctly remember reading the lyrics and just being like what the fuck is wrong with these guys i understand it's like you know, they were a more extreme branch of everything else that was coming out of the thrash scene in California. And they 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 kept that extremity, you know, both in uh, the, the songs and, you know, the textures and the riffs being very, it's like a predator coming at you. And then, uh, and then the lyrical content, which, you know, shows the bleakness of uh, realities. Tyler, what are your thoughts about Slayer? Uh, Slayer is one of my... Uh personal favorite heavy metal bands of all time there some of their albums are amongst my most listened to uh like show no mercy uh hell awaits and south of heaven especially uh when i think about slayer to me slayer is the first four albums um i will say that out of those first four rain and blood is my least listened to uh my personal opinion on that record is that it is the record that uh you could say hardcore punk or maybe crossover thrash always wanted to do and slayer just did it better than all of those acts but to me um i know this is blasphemy to some ears slayer doing the best crossover thrash album is a downgrade for slayer uh there's some tracks on there like you mentioned jason that i think have that air of classic slayer to them angel of death to an extent the title track uh, Altar of Sacrifice, which I recently learned is actually an older track that they wanted to have on Hell Awaits, but uh, their producer said that he didn't think it, they should have it on the album, so they moved it on to uh, Rain and Blood instead. Um, I think that, of course, their historical importance should not go unstated, um, but I also feel that emphasizing that too much um denigrate some of their contributions to uh extreme metal uh, i won't say that they invented the trem the style of tremolo riffing that would later be picked up and advanced upon by death metal and uh black metal um but i do think that they innovated the use of it that became largely prevalent prevalent in those genres uh, especially on like albums like Hell Awaits, where you hear almost outright what you could call very early death metal riffs from for the first time, um, which I think is a huge advancement in songwriting for heavy metal because that tremolo riffing enables you to create longer flowing melodies. Um, you know, it solves the problem of sustain on a guitar where you could only hold notes for so long before they eventually bled off. Tremolo riffing allows you to extend the length of those notes um, much, to a much greater length. Um, and uh, I also think that um, while, like, uh, as also Jason said, there was a bit of posturing and uh, sort of um, antagonism 
to their adoption of uh, satanic imagery. They did attempt to inject some depth into it too. Uh, the title track of Hell Awaits, for instance, there's the famous portion, uh, pray to the moon when it is round, death for you shall then abound, for what you seek for can't be found in sea or sky or underground. That's actually a paraphrase of a passage from the book Dune uh, by Frank Herbert, um, You know, which at their time, the internet was not uh, was not a resource. So it's not like they just Googled up cool passages from literature. They must have been familiar with the work to some extent. And uh, even talking about musical influences, there's an interview from the combat tour where um, they were talking about their influences and they brought up heavy metal like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and uh, Merciful Fate um, and uh, hardcore punk. Uh, also said that they listened to a lot of classical, like uh, Bach was one of the names they mentioned. And the interviewer thought they were joking. He started laughing. And in the background, you can hear one of them say, you think we're joking? We're not. <laughs> um but uh, so it goes to show that they were at least, you know, conversant with that style of music, maybe not at any sort of uh, very, like studied level, but they did listen to it. and It had some impact on their songwriting, which I think you can hear on uh, Hell Awaits, um, although I know that predominantly the influence behind the progressivism on that album was Merciful Fate, which had a somewhat similar but maybe less advanced progressivism to their song structures on albums like Melissa and Don't Break the Oath. But yeah, in general... I think Slayer's amazing. I love their records. Uh, Show No Mercy I listen to almost constantly. Uh, Hell Awaits is another regular listen. And then I also really appreciate South of Heaven for it's a very dark, almost nocturnal atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we would all agree, like, South of Heaven is the last good Slayer album. Um, you know, the Seasons in the Abyss had some, you know, catchy songs, but they really started uh, simulating a uh, kind of the rock music template for song construction a little bit there. And, you know, here comes the music video and they're doing stuff in front of the pyramids, blah, 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 blah. Prime for M MTV back then. And uh, yeah, the, the downward trajectory is very apparent with uh, season in the abyss. And of course, you know, divine intervention. I do like a couple of songs off of that. You know, I did discover it when I was a young kid and, uh, but still, I, I definitely see the rot there in the album. And of course, I remember when Diabolos and Musica came out. I remember that. And I went and got it. I'm like, fuck yeah, New Slayer. And then I turned it on. I was like, oh, shit. It's like, this is fucking Lump Biscuit. <laughs> and and I, I hated new metal so much back then because I was a diehard, you know, real metal, like with Riftcraft and all that. And here I am hearing Slayer try to cater to the new metal crowd. And I remember back when uh, God Hates Us All came out, I was telling someone, I was like, no, this is fucking new metal. And this guy was way older than I was. He was like, no, this isn't fucking new metal. This is Slayer. I'm like, no, dude, this is fucking new metal. <laughs> like, there's actual new metal tracks on that fucking album. And it's like, even back then, I had the discernment. It's like, no, this isn't a real Slayer. This this doesn't have, you know, riffs that seem like layer and architecture and all of that. Um, it just seems like it's just, you know put some textures together and make it bouncy and, you know, uh, Tom Araya almost wraps, you know, here and there. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a, the golden arrow slayer, which is, you know, haunting the chapel through, or was it haunting the chapel? That's the first Tyler. You should know this. No, that was, uh, the EP no released Mercy. after their debut. Yeah. Show no mercy was the first. Yeah. Show no mercy through South of heaven is what I would consider the golden period for Slayer and everything else is kind of just redundant and assimilating aspects that are that were external 
to the golden period, like uh, the new metal and just cookie cutter uh, templates and from rock or hard rock and whatnot. So uh, any thoughts on like how uh, Slayer uh, did that downward trajectory, Shelly or Tyler? Uh, sure. I definitely agree with you that they adopted some new metal elements, uh, starting uh, with Diabolus and Musica, which even Carrie King uh, admitted that was the case. Well, he somewhat admitted it. He said that it he was angry about new metal at the time and was trying to compete with it. Uh, but he did say he regrets making that album. Um, but uh, you know, on God Hates Us All, I think those elements are still present. I also think that they were really trying to imitate bands that are pretty close to new metal, uh, like tough guy hardcore, like Hatebreed, um, and then other groups that they were. I think maybe at that time they were they were really uh, hyping them. Uh, Slayer was like Chimera. I know at one point Slayer said Chimera is the closest successor to Slayer in the metal scene. They said the same thing about Sepultura earlier. Um, but uh, I do think that probably starting with uh, Christ Illusion, their quality increased a bit, but nowhere near their classic material. It got about to the level where I would say it's a decent heavy metal album, as in like close to quality of like Judas Priest or Iron Maiden, maybe some of their middling albums. They they kind of like stepped up to that level of quality with Christ Illusion and uh, World Painted Blood and uh, Repentless, which means that the only value in listening to them is, oh, Slayer sl um, sucks slightly less, uh, which means I, I don't listen to them at all. Um but yeah, they definitely had that kind of downward trajectory. I'm not too familiar with Divine Intervention. Never really listened to the album much. Uh, but I think that, as Jason said, Rot really started with uh, South of Heaven when they started incorporating more rock and roll aspects into their music. I mean, yeah, it's almost like um, you can track it based on how much hair Kerry King had. Um, that kind of logs the uh, <laughs> decline of Slayer. Um, but I think what's also interesting, particularly of 90s Slayer, is when other thrash bands were kind of going hell for leather with the like commercial aspect, like making power ballads and trying to be stadium rock, and others were trying to sort of cash in on the Pantera, then the new metal book. Um, Slayer, although they did definitely do that, I wouldn't I wouldn't deny that, but they they kind of they tried to maintain at least a semblance of integrity the the likes of Metallica kind of quickly jettisoned. Um, and you see that in, you know, an album like Undisputed Attitude, which was like a response to pop punk, essentially, because, you know, as we've already mentioned, Slayer were hugely influenced by early hardcore punk as well. And, you know, this new form of punk music was coming out that was essentially pop music um, and it was being called punk and it was getting very popular at the time in the mid 90s. And they were kind of trying to reassert that, like, no, no, this isn't punk. This this is actually punk, what we're what we're covering here. And yeah, I get it. But it also kind of smacks of sort of a slightly older generation um, getting annoyed at what the kids are listening to now, but also realizing they've kind of dried up their creative well has sort of dried up a little bit. So they don't really have anything to do other than sort of create slayer versions of what's popular or else sort of cover music that they liked when they were kids that they think the kids should be listening to now. Um, whilst that's not the 
worst thing a sort of has-been artist can do. Um, like I said, sort of other thrash bands, decline was much more dramatic. It still sort of spoke of them sort of circling around and kind of losing their way in the in the 90s. And I think becoming sort of victims of their own reputation in a way. And I definitely agree sort of by the mid 2000s, late 2000s, they did kind of get their act together a little bit more. Um, I'm not so familiar with the albums sort of from the late 90s onwards, but I did listen to World Painted Blood at the time. And I do remember thinking it was a dramatic return to form, but also when when the dip is that dramatic, it doesn't take much to kind of lift it back up. But by the time that was released, you know, Slayer were very much like yesterday's news. They were, you know, uh, quite a bit older. Um, their best years were behind them. And whilst, you know, it's not impossible for older artists to, you know, come back and kind of, you know, release some material that really sort of grabs everyone's attention. I think it's one of these where it's like, you know, they've done enough. They've released some of the best metal albums, some of the most revered metal albums ever. And everything else is kind of surplus to requirements from there. So, uh, yeah, the decline was dramatic, but not not as bad as, as some of their peers anyway. Yeah, something I've, I've been trying to wrap my mind around over the last five years is general theory has come to mind where I, I think it might just be a guitar-based music that you know, there's a lot of innovation in a band and then they just kind of taper off and, you know, there's a, you know, a great decline in quality. Whereas in classical music, uh, composers tend to get better the older they become. I understand a lot of it is they become more learned and they're able to, you know, do counterpoint better later in life than they were when they were younger and things like that. But, um, in metal, um, it's very, very rare where you have a project that there isn't a downward trajectory. You know, there's the, and everyone always talks about is like this the, the elitist thing, just to listen to the demos and all that. But there's some truth to uh, the best quality being usually from the uh, the early material. You know, Slayer's case, you know, the first three albums. Um, you know, Metallica, same thing, first three albums. And granted, I know Tyler. You know loves uh, uh ride lightning more than uh, master of puppets but i think master of puppets is pretty good but uh um there's this great you know period of quality and it's usually early on with most metal bands and then there's a downward trajectory and there's only a handful of bands who never had uh, a very observable downward trajectory like beherit for instance or you know samath you know you just interviewed uh john the other uh, last weekend i believe and the peak for Samoth is like in their mid career, which is really, really strange. It's like later, you know, part of their career, they came out Godless Arrogance, which I consider the the highest peak for them. So there are a handful of exceptions, but I think it has something to do with, uh, you know, just the youthfulness and wanting to be, you know, the best uh, in any given arena, like, you know, the, the early death metal bands in Tampa, they, they competed with each other. Like there was actually bad blood between Deicide and Morbid Angel. And they, they both believed the other band shouldn't exist back then. Like, no, this is my territory. My music's better. And they, they just kept pushing themselves more and more and more. And it was very youthful and all that just to come out on top and be the top dog. And then after that, there's downward trajectory. <laughs> but in classical music, there there really isn't a downward trajectory as uh, the composers age. Um, any thoughts on that, Shelley? Yeah, 
I would say that's because there's no such thing as like a punk classical composer. I mean, I know you could make an argument for Mozart being one, but by punk, I mean someone that doesn't know how to play their instrument or know music theory. Like to get to the stage where you are a classical composer that is renowned enough to get uh, patrons and um, to do it as a profession, you need to be really studied, really competent at your instrument. You need to know the theory and you need to know the history of the music that you're engaging with. And this was true right back to, um, you know, the Baroque era. Whereas with metal um, and a lot of guitar-based genres surrounding it, um, you can just pick up an instrument and go. And this was especially true in the early 80s when Slayer were getting going. Um, like on Show No Mercy, although it's a highly competent album, they were still amateurs at the time. They didn't know what they were doing. Like I remember an interview with Dave Lombardo saying that at the time he recorded the drums for that album, he like recorded all of the drum tracks and then recorded all of the cymbal tracks separately because they thought that was how you did it. And it was only after the fact that they realized that you you can just record a drum take all in one go. But that's just an example of like Slayer, you can track their growing musicianship over the course of their albums. And that's true of most of the bands that we discuss on. Hang on one second, sorry. Uh, no worries. Uh, yeah, I could kind of comment on that while uh, Shelley steps away. Uh, I also think that societal pressure was different during uh, the time of great classical composers. Uh, I don't think that uh, mass acceptance was as much of a factor. You know, most of those composers, what they were aiming to obtain was uh, patronage from uh, aristocrats. Uh, they weren't aiming to make something that appealed to the widest audience possible. And so I think that whole audience appeal provides a temptation for artists today. Although I don't think that's the whole explanation. I think that um, what Shelley said is a big part of it as well. No, uh, d different periods of classical music, different you know things going on culturally. Uh, like with the Enlightenment, you know, which brought about, you know, Romanticism eventually. Um, music was very, very personal. You have to take in consideration that there wasn't TV, there, were, there weren't, you know, a lot of distractions that we have nowadays where people spent time together and there's usually someone in the family who played an instrument and, you know, like Chopin's Nocturnes, like that would be distributed around and say, like, oh yeah, we have a... I have a daughter or son who plays piano and she plays Chopin or whatever at night. It's very personal for people. Um, and it was more communal, um, uh, you know, in that period. Yes, there were, you know, aristocrats that, you know, even the Wagner, one build out Wagner and he ended up banging the guy's wife, which was uh, Franz Liszt's daughter. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's, there's different aspects of the different periods of classical music. Um, of course, you know, a lot of it was, you know, through the church, you know, through, you know, look at Bach all the way to Bruckner. There was a lot of church music going on there. Um, not just aristocrats, you know, paying these guys, you know, money to write symphonies and piano concerti and whatever for them. But uh, um, there's different types of cultural aspects going on throughout the, the history of classical music. So well, what's, what's interesting now is like, so again, we talk about the difference between musicians making music in the 70s and 80s. And often the reason all of the artists back then are so distinct from each other 
is because at the time they didn't have much to go on. Um, as we mentioned, like Slayer, they were huge fans of like early heavy metal, Judas Priest and stuff, and they listened to a lot of punk music. Um, but they weren't sort of immersed in the material they before they picked up their instruments and decided to contribute their own. And that's that's true of most of the, the classic metal bands, whereas now we're almost at a stage where musicians before they new new musicians younger musicians before they start a project they're already immersed in the history of metal they're like well versed in all of the different strains and all of the like key artists they know exactly what their influences are and they're usually much more competent at their instruments now like the amateurism of early Baffery, early slayer um just isn't really a thing anymore unless it's like a conscious consciously done amateurism deliberately um, most musicians that put music out now are really quite technically competent compared to like the standards of the early 80s. Um, but at the same time, that kind of leads to a general sterility. People are too self-conscious of what they're doing um, because, you know, metal isn't classical music. There isn't like a, a formal canon that you have to study. There isn't a body of academic music theory that you need to go away and like immerse yourself in. Um, metal would like to think it's like that, but it, it isn't there because classical music is centuries old and it has, you know, achingly like institutionalized bodies of knowledge and like hierarchies and so on that people have to kind of um, navigate in order to engage with the classical world. Whereas metal is, you know, it's still the music of amateurism, but it's trying to take on that professional edge now. Whereas Slayer at the time, much like any classic metal band, we're just like, no, we can do it. We'll just pick up our instruments and see what happens. And yeah, this, an album like Show No Mercy happened. So, yeah, I remember uh, I listened to a, a Jeff Hanneman uh, demo tape where it's just him just playing guitar, right? You know, I think before he even started jamming with the band, where he had all this really abrasive riffs at. And it was very feral the way he put it all together. And I know Trey Asagoff, too, like he started playing guitar and then immediately started a band. So, he wasn't really experienced on guitar, but just did a lot of covers and things like that to become accustomed to playing, you know, more complex things. And uh, so, yeah, it's like a lot of these guys, you know, early on, they had only been playing their instrument for, you know, six months to a couple of years. And they, they're, they're able to come out and generate, you know, all their, you know, classic material and all that. And whereas in classical music, yeah, there is a long period before you're able to do something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of study and a lot of, you know, uh, refinement of technique and all that before you're even capable of going up on stage and you know performing a piece whether it's someone else's material or your own there has to be some forethought you know like especially if you're writing your own music which i don't think there's really any uh really wonderful uh, classical composers today i was listening to a uh, um a, a symphony by philip glass and i was actually listening to this thing i'm like I could write something better than this. It is so fucking sterile. Not much going on at all in the music. And he's printed around as one of the best like modern composers. And it's really, there's nothing there, like really digging into it. I understand like there's some charm to glass works and things like that and the minimalist school. But when it comes to his like full-fledged symphonies, there's there's hardly anything there. And I would actually say Penderecki, which is like a carbon copy of Shostakovich, would uh his symphonies blow away that uh that Philip Glass guy. But anyway, just kind of contrasting, you know, classical music to uh uh metal and you know why they're drastically different in terms of 
how quality comes out. It's usually you know, classical music gets better and better the older the composer becomes, whereas in metal is the opposite where uh, the guitarists, you know, they lose that feral aspect, which I think there needs to be a little bit of wildness, a little fury coming into that, a little, you know, untamed nature coming out of metal. And when musicians become tamed over time, they kind of lose that fire. So go ahead, Tyler. I know you want to talk about Jeff Hanneman. Yeah, uh, you brought him up briefly, and I was going to ask the two of you, uh, Jason and Shelley, I didn't know how familiar you two were with the internal dynamics of the band, but speaking on Slayer's decline in quality, I know that um, after Seasons in the Abyss, um, it, that increasingly Carrie King took over composition duties um, because uh, I think it was partly because Jeff developed that uh, necrotizing uh, fasciitis in his, um, I believe it was his picking arm, and he wasn't able to play uh, guitar quite as well. Um, so Kerry King took over compositional duties largely from that point forward. I also remember an interview with uh, Phil Anselmo where I believe it was either Phil Anselmo or that guy from Machine Head. But one of the two of them mentioned how, and I was, I was, this is what brought this to my awareness, how uh, the majority of the songs by Slayer that they thought were the greatest that they um, they realized this shortly after Jeff Hanneman passed away were composed by Jeff Hanneman. And so I went and re did research myself and saw that was largely true, that a large bulk of their early material, and uh, especially of the better early material, was composed by uh, Jeff Hanneman. Um, so I didn't know if you two had any uh, awareness of this, and if you did, if you had any comments on, uh, I'm sure it's not like the whole story, uh, but uh, how if the decline of uh, input from Jeff Hanneman had any contributions to their decline in quality over the years. Yeah, I always assumed Jeff Hanneman was the main figurehead writing the music. Um, I just always assumed that. And I thought Kerry King, you know, you look at Kerry King, you know, you look at him and you, you would think he would be in a monster truck rally, not, you know, racing hell on guitar. Um, Shelly, do you have any thoughts on Jeff Hanneman being the main force behind Slayer? Well, yeah, I mean, I did know that. You can you can kind of tell as well, by the way, like Kerry King's no Lars, but he is not afraid to kind of, shall we say, indulge in uh, shilling the band a little bit. Like he's, you know, he's played with like some 41 and he does a lot of like commercial collaborations and he kind of poses as the face of the band. But I think... Yeah, it, it is quite obvious, especially earlier on, that um, the most talented members were Hanneman and Dave Lombardo in terms of like the the real engine room of like the Slayer classics. And Kerry King, although he's like he's he's a charismatic guy and he was important to like the performance and putting forward the idea of Slayer, um, he wasn't the most uh, talented member of the band for sure. I know that Jason would take umbrage at this. Uh, specifically, but talking about Kerry King's influence being uh, deleterious, I did hear that once in an interview, he was being handed albums by the interviewer to determine, uh, you know, basically to give his comments on them. And one of the albums they handed him was, I believe, Morbid Tales by Celtic Frost. And he, he didn't even say anything about it. He just threw it on the ground. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know, like, 
you know, you look at Kerry King, I just looking at the guy at the tribal tattoos, you know, the long goatee, you know, he belongs in a monster truck, monster truck rally. And I thought I saw a video sometime of him, like in a snake farm, you know, all that. And he, he, I just picture him just chugging some Bud Light, you know, out in the back porch, you know, talking about, you know, the, those darn liberals and, you know, and, you know, you know all well, that's kind of, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier on in my opening comments. Like, you have the Slayer of the mid, the early to mid eighties, where not just the music that is grounded, it's it's thrash, but it's grounded in this cultist, heavy metal grandeur, and they're wearing eyeliner and spikes and leather, and you know, not that that's completely necessary, but it kind it's indicative of a certain kind of metal band. But then when the when the Kerry King kind of um, takes over in the nineties, it does align itself much more with um the sort of meathead like tough guy hardcore kind of thing and you you see the if you watch live footage you see the composition of the crowd change from a broadly kind of denim and leather metal crowd to a more of a, a muscle bound short hair tattoos hardcore kind of crowd and you know that that kind of music has its place it's not for me but it's also it kind of took over the slayer entity and turned them into something something else um and i think that was kind of anathema to the more dark romanticism of the slayer that uh we three kind of appreciate more yeah i guess a good way to summarize like the kind of you know personality that he projects is like if jeff foxworthy got into extreme metal you know like a a peckerwood hillbilly guy and you know you know not necessarily dumb or anything just you know just really you know, kind of low brow with his hobbies um, and not something that you would expect from, you know, a band raising so much hell is just, you know. Uh, who yeah. is Jeff Foxworthy? <laughs> oh, he was a, a country comedian who would, uh, I forgot what, what his line was, Tyler. It's like, you know, you're a redneck when. Blah, yeah, you might be a redneck if you, uh, if you most time urinate behind a tree or something like that. <laughs> you might be a redneck if your 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 sister is also your wife, you know, shit sh like that. <laughs> like, you know, it's really really stupid fucking uh, redneck comedy. Um, okay, it, that that didn't make it over here. So, <laughs> yeah, and I, I I would see like if he was like in the metal, he'd you know be a Carrie King type of figure with the monster truck rallies. <laughs> yeah, it's like Slayer lost their mysticism in that later period. And uh, speaking about their impact on metal. I think that's uh, interesting to note those sort of two different, the, that dual personality of Slayer, because uh, if you look in the underground scene of today, like the really underground extreme death and black metal scene, not commenting on the quality of all of those bands, but the bands that clearly are conversant with actual underground death and black metal that engage in all of the blasphemous symbolism and the diabolical symbolism, um, those bands and those and the fans in that scene still hold those early Slayer albums in very high regard, uh, despite the fact that that's a whole section of the metal scene that meant that a large portion of Slayer's fan base are entirely unfamiliar with. There's a large portion of Slayer's fan base that just looks at them as a sort of awesome, heavy, pummeling rock and metal band uh, that have no idea what bands like, as a random example, like Imprecation are. 
or uh, Pro Fanatica or Nun Slaughter. But if you look at all of those bands, all of those bands are still going to be toting imagery from Show No Mercy, you know, making riffs and variants on the imagery of like the goat, the, the sort of Baphomet goat man on the cover and talking about how awesome Show No Mercy and Hell Awaits are and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think another uh, uh, attribute, like, let's be honest, Slayer turned in a, into a brand with uh, Seasons in the Abyss. Then the, rather than a band, they turned into a brand. And uh, a good instance, you know, microcosm of that is when they replaced uh, Jeff Hanneman with Gary Holt. And Gary Holt was making stupid fucking headlines for uh, like wearing a shirt that said "Kill the Kardashians" and things like that, where he's just being edgy just to make headlines and really nonsensical shit. When when you're catering to like the the mainstream pop culture in society, which is you know like reality TV and the Kardashians, and you're just insulting that, that is like the lowest hanging fruit ever. Um, doesn't take you know more than one brain cell to do something like that and that's how he was making headlines and I, I think that's you know definitely you know well after the period that Slayer became a brand rather than a band um but yeah um so anything like uh any thoughts on like Tom Herrera being a uh, a Catholic and things like that which is kind of antithetical to uh the Slayer I know I know originally they started out being really satanic and they they kept like a lot of anti Christian sentiments going on and you know throughout even the later years but uh um and they started focusing more on like serial killers blah blah blah, blah. but um what about any thoughts about the contradictory nature of the vocalists being Catholic just being a, essentially a parrot because he doesn't write the lyrics he's just up there you know being a parrot um any thoughts about that well, uh, Tom Araya had a little bit more influence on lyrics in the earlier period of Slayer. Uh, later on, it was a, but the the largest contributors were always like Jeff Hanneman and Carrie King, and later on, especially Carrie King. Um, I never was too bothered by Tom Araya being Catholic, and clearly Carrie King isn't bothered by it either, which is you know surprising in the sense that Carrie King has always had the most bitter invective against religion like early slayers anti-religion was largely part of a kind of like demonic mythology but later slayer where carrie king had more of the songwriting duties uh you know his anti-religious position is just anger a lot of it you know i remember somebody uh talking about it in an interview and saying something like i just don't understand was he like touched by a priest as a kid or something um but um but yeah you know he he having that kind of level of animosity towards religion has never made a comment about being upset that Tom Araya is Catholic, which I'm not sure why it leads me to believe that Tom Araya may be one of those kind of Catholics who says, Oh yeah, I'm Catholic. And yeah, I believe in that stuff, but doesn't really uh, practice in a devout way. Uh, but regardless, it, it clearly never influenced um, slayer that much and i remember that tom's comment on it specifically when asked about it was well you know um i we make songs about reality and there's dark aspects of reality as well as uh good aspects and we cover both of them yeah i would that's kind of the sense i get is i, I always assumed it was just his upbringing um and sort of seeing it more as an identity rather than as a as a practicing religion and like it might just be that early on it was sort of, you know, the theatrics of, you know, Satanism and the occult. And then it, it did get into more 
like the the social commentary aspect of it and that kind of weaves more into the sort of grounded realism that Slayer were dealing with but I don't I don't necessarily see it as contradictory to a thinking Catholics beliefs if they're very fast and loose with their kind of religious practice but yeah as as Tyler said like Slayer's philosophy has always been we reflect the world that we see around us or at least Slayer's post 1990 philosophy was they just reflect you know the world that they exist in and they 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 sing what they see um and yeah that that means that they will shine a light on the darkest aspects of of organized religion and um but you know they they you know they cover many topics as well that the kind of you know uh, indicative of living in <laughs> sort of modern american society so yeah uh, they're way more extreme than you know their counterparts or colleagues in the uh the the big four that came from california which was metallica megadeth and anthrax you know those bands had you know accessible mainstream appeal um i'll stop you just for a second i know you know this jason but just in case anyone puts in the comments yes we know anthrax are from new york they're not from california <laughs> well weren't they part of the big four they were part of the big four but you said the big four from california and i know that you know this i'm just being pedantic but anthrax were from new york so. no I've always, I've always hated anthrax i bought a close that out <laughs> among the people or whatever and and talking to killer bees and i was like this band sucks so <laughs> yeah they're the worst yeah, yeah. they're definitely the, the weaker the weakest link in that but yeah you would think it would be like exodus up there at least exodus put out some good material but yeah um yeah, so contrasting them with uh, the big four, so Slayer is like a thousand times more extreme than those other bands. So it's kind of interesting, like the, the melting pot of those concerts where you had, you know, mainstream accessible, you know, MTV bands, which granted Slayer was an MTV band too, but uh, they're much more extreme. And, you know, they would have blood raining down on them in their concerts and, you know, huge spectacles that they would put together yet. You know, a lot of the people there at the shows, it's like, you know, they, they might have just, their knowledge of metal just is from what they, they've heard on the radio. Um, do you guys view that it's kind of odd that Slayer was part of that touring package? I think it was really strange just because of how extreme Slayer was, at least in the early material. Um, yeah, I think... I think obviously the big four is like uh, a marketing strategy um, for convenience. Like, like we said, Anfrak shouldn't be there. Like Overkill, Testament, Exodus, uh, Picker, an American Thrash Band, they should be in Anthrax's place. But in terms of like their standing more broadly, um, it's kind of similar to Napalm Death in many ways, in that Slayer has currency well outside of metal circles. Um, but when you know, obviously, like the likes of Metallica and Iron Maiden also have that, but Slayer, as you said, are, are far more extreme. And I'd go as far as to say they're one of the most extreme bands of their standing. Where you know you could go up to a randomer in the street and say, "Have you have you at least heard of Slayer?" And they would say yes, whereas they probably wouldn't for a, a Morbid Angel or a Deicide. Um, so I, I think from that aspect, it is quite odd. But I think it's just the fact that they were kind of picked up as a very early meme of of metal in a lot of ways and some you know famous comedians some famous kind of personalities you know just drop their name now and then they get in with as i mentioned the likes of sub 41 they get a few slots on mtv 
Um, and it is possible for a band that extreme to, you know, gain real traction with a wider audience. But as we discussed, it's another thing whether that audience actually understands, you know, the entity that they're engaging with. But yeah, it is it is worth commenting on how how popular they are, yet how extreme they manage to sort of remain. Yeah, I think that in some ways they were kind of in the right place at the right time. But also, they really were pushing a form of extremity that hadn't been done before them. I mean, you could list bands that were influences on them, like Venom, but Venom didn't have just the right cultural placement and uh, you know circumstances to uh, push them to the forefront. You know, Slayer being part of the thrash scene was they got spotlight along with the rest of the thrash scene as being the legitimate metal alternative to hair metal, which was uh, at least a nationwide in the U S if not a worldwide to a certain extent phenomenon on the radio at the time. Um, and so they kind of got the same, you know, fame that all of those other thrash bands like Metallica got not as much as Metallica, but still got some of that fame, but just happened to be the one band out of all of those bands that was pushing a much more extreme and dark image. And really that's kind of to their credit that they were doing that. I mean, the scene that they influenced like extreme death and black metal, that kind of stuff is commonplace in that scene today. You know, it's just taken for granted. Uh, but before Slayer, that wasn't really being done. And in a certain sense, all of those bands are in, at least to some extent uh, indebted to Slayer for that being as common as it is today. I would say, yeah, so actually sort of to dive a little bit deeper into like 80s Slayer, mid-80s Slayer, um, it's interesting to kind of discuss what they were doing differently to comparable bands. Like you mentioned Venom, but we could also discuss like Bathory, Celtic Frost, um, some of the German thrash bands like Sodom and Creator and um, Destruction as well. And um, who else was I going to mention? Not Merciful Fate. Um, but yeah, other, other bands that were kind of, oh, Possessed, that was it, trying to push that, push what was at the time, like speed metal and heavy metal, mesh it with the extremity and aggression of hardcore punk, and then take the theatrics of like the new wave of British heavy metal a bit more seriously, turn it up and dial, um, and kind of see where it goes. But Slayer kind of marked themselves out yeah, A, by being part of the Big Four, which gave them much more traction than the likes of their European counterparts. But also, they they kind of lent a sense of aggression and conviction. Um, I hesitate to use the word conviction because I don't want to say that, like, Bathory or Celtic Frost didn't play with conviction when they certainly did. But there was this element of, like, really kind of aggressive joy that they seem to be taking in their music. Whereas Bathory and Celtic Frost were more kind of romantic and dramatic and almost tragic in a way. Whereas Slayer were almost, almost, you know, you listen to Hell Awaits and it sounds like they're almost having fun whilst also being so evil and malevolent, which, uh, yeah, I don't think you really got in many bands at the time. And that's something that death metal in particular really kind of picked up on is kind of this nihilistic, revelry almost and and later black metal as well through the the lens of um kind of yeah later baffery and so on kind of picked up on as well is kind of taking this sort of bacchanalian madness to the point where you're almost possessed by it and yeah you really get that sense on like showing a mercy hell awaits and, and rain in blood that 
that that's what they were bringing to the table when compared to to many of their contemporaries of the time. Yeah, it just dawned on me. So when I was a kid, I bought Divine Intervention. Um, I know this album you guys really aren't that familiar with, but the 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 album cover that you guys are accustomed to seeing is like the skeleton and the circle thing. Whereas uh, when I bought it, there was a black cover over that with just Slayer carved out. And that was for people to carve Slayer into themselves, like into their flesh. It was like a, a little template for people to do that. And that it just dawned on me that's what that was for, um, which is kind of extreme. It's, it's, it's advocating self-harm, you know, in uh, major record stores worldwide. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? People carving Slayer into their arms? Uh, yeah, it's definitely kind of um, part of, you know, Slayer maybe didn't have as much of this as, you know, obviously like Norwegian black metal classic bands did later on. But more than I think uh, before them, Slayer had more of an attitude of flirting with the idea of, oh, we're taking this violence and this darkness seriously. And part of like a display of that was, uh, you know, sort of uh, theatrical gestures like carving Slayer into your arm, you know. Um, and uh, it was that was, you know, in a, in and of itself, that kind of like theatrical gesture was a kind of um, was kind of a sort of a a, a, a a sort of symbolism or antagonism, you know, meant to shock. Um, but they they opened up the floodgates for that. And really, it was like a sort of uh, kind of like, a, a, you know, like a like a sort of a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like you had a, a chain of events that was started with them or largely started with them that in, increased in velocity from that point forward of how seriously can we take this? How, you know, how, how, how much can we actually like embody these things that, you know, before us were just talked about in lyrics or just showed on album art? Like how much can we actually like get, like actually give across the impression that we actually do believe and live by like this darkness that we communicate in our music? Yeah. I mean, the moment they decided to, open an album with like you know auschwitz the meaning of pain the way that i want you to die is like that's <laughs> there's no going back uh from that point in terms of like trying to outdo shock rockers um in saying like no we really mean it um we're we're sort of you know we're toying at the line and then yeah the, the artists that followed kind of wanted to you know take it that step further but yeah you're right to sort of describe slayer as like opening the floodgates in that regard. And I think that's another thing that death metal bands picked up on is sort of saying, right, when we're coming up with the lyrics and the themes and our kind of like thematic inspiration, there, there are literally no limits now. We need to take this as far as we could possibly go. Um, and that's something that, yeah, the bands just a handful of years later took very, very seriously. Yeah, there, there's a, a few things that, you know, Slayer's too big to cancel or they were too big to cancel. For a long time, they had the Slayer Eagle, um, and I would, which I believe is you know really common still to find in like record shops and things, which is uh, looks closely to uh, the Nazi Eagle, things like that. Where, but they always in interviews you know disavow that. It's like, no, we're just talking about the dark aspects of those regimes, you know, and you know what happened in history, um, rather than embracing you know specific ideologies of those regimes. Um, so yeah, they flirted with a lot of things, and it seemed to be just to. Uh, kind of antagonize the public like the mainstream culture you know especially 
you look at, you know, the anti-Christian sentiments. That was during the satanic panic, and Slayer just embraced that so much. Um, and then you had uh, the Nazi imagery um, and lyrical content. Um, then you also had, like, really, really depraved lyrics about Ed Gein and things like, or Ed Gein, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, um, and things of that nature where you're talking about the, the sheer murderous psychopaths that would you know, do horrible things to other people. Um, and they're unafraid to, you know, tackle, you know, those subjects and throw it in everyone's face. So, it's, yeah, it's like they, they're uh, contrarian to the uh, whatever the prevailing zeitgeist seems to be, and that's part of the charm. Um, but also I think that's part of, uh, you know, just the, the thing that a lot of bands, you know, when they, like Cannibal Corpse, you know, just being shock value, um, it kind of takes away from the music. Um, and you can definitely see that with later Slayer with Angry Man, Carrie King, you know, essentially being Glenn Bitten is like, I don't like God. Ugh. So um, any final thoughts about Slayer before we wrap up today? Well, I, I think we need to discuss um, guitar solos and that time prescriptor from Absu. Uh, auditioned to drum for them and dropped his drumstick during the audition. <laughs> yeah, uh, there. The, Don't know if you ever seen that video, but <laughs> yeah, he looked like he was jamming out when Prescriptor tried out for a Slayer. <laughs> it was like, oh, look at Prescriptor go! He's having a great old time, and he was really into it. But I'm unsure why he never got the spot. But um, in regard to solos. I think Slayer was kind of negative influence on like, <laughs> uh, extreme metal and solos being incorporated in because it was just, you know, random chromatic scales and whammy bar, whammy bar. And, uh, and it was just really no real thought to it. And Kerry King is like his solos. Oh my God. You know, if you could summarize, you know, what it looks like, you know, being the monster truck rally, you know, tribal tattooed arms and, you know, goatee and you know manscaped commercials and all that um he he physically embodies how stupid the fucking solos are in slayer and there's a lot of well do you think the solos actually add to the music shelly well this is what i was gonna say because we, we were discussing this before the episode which is why i brought it up and um i think we, we haven't sort of taken a deep dive into like the 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 structural aspects of like classic slayer and the, the sort of their approach to crafting songs from more elongated riffs which was novel at the time but is, is commonplace now but we could say something similar in terms of the solos as we could for sort of like celtic frosts in that their solos they don't really go anywhere they don't they have no kind of melodic content they're kind of just threat fretboard murder but they do like raise the stakes as far as the drama and the chaos is concerned. And I, I think I know Kerry King solos are like a, a joke on like for YouTube guitarists now where it's just a, a, an ongoing like running joke. But I do think they add to add a sense of chaos and um, a sense of discomfort to a lot of the music or additional discomfort. I should say there's obviously not really anything going on in the in the technical sense and yeah sometimes they are quite painful to listen to but i think they should be painful to listen to i think that's what i like about them um i think that's that kind of puts me in the minority and as far as like liking kerry king's soloing is concerned but i think they do lend a sense of like nihilistic chaos to the fray that 
like yeah really kind of when it hits right it really kind of elevates the moment for me well there's a lot of that you kind of mimic that too like uh really knuckle dragging uh projects like bestial warlust totally worship that type type of soloing and you know just nonsensical just throw it in there just because it sounds chaotic um rather than having any like musical foundation other than just you know being uh, a venue to thrust forward you know more chaotic texture um and that that type of soloing became so prevalent a lot of really underground you know death and black metal bands you know you look at trey esgoth there's a little bit in that in the early solos but he's much more expansive he's much more learned on guitar and he's able to um create you know some meaning the uh, musical yeah meaning no, I, i'm not saying i'm not saying that solos shouldn't have meaning obviously like a sophisticated solo can add real content to a composition but i just think there is a place for the slayer approach um that really does add something even if it's not you know hardcore concrete musical content that you can point to it is just kind of random like wankery i think there is a place for that and at the time when slayer started sort of innovating that it wasn't as common as it was and i think it does really kind of fit the the kind of music that slayer were, were making at the time but yeah i accept it is probably overused now because it is easy to reproduce unlike you know a really sophisticated morbid angel solo but yeah, yeah i uh, agree with you i mean you're talking about noisy chaotic unstructured solos uh being painful to listen to in a genre of music or at least especially if you're talking about I, I never said it was painful I said it was stupid like not, not, not <laughs> yeah. dragon band um I was that. you know yeah I understand but you know in a genre that like partly predicates itself on being unpleasant to listen to but yeah I understand where you're coming from you know they could have like something that actually like advances on the development of theme something like that but my position on solos and metal in general is that they're largely unnecessary uh and you for the most part, with some exceptions, get two kinds of solos in metal. You get guitar wankery or you get chaotic noise. And while neither of them are ideally what I would like to see, I will take the chaotic noise over the guitar wankery. Um, you, you may differ from me on that, and that's okay. But yeah, I, uh, you know, besides a few exceptions of guitarists that actually use solos to like advance like melodic development or advance like development of theme. And at that point, you have to ask yourself the question, is it really a guitar solo anymore or is it just another like additional melodic development in the piece? Well, do you like abstract in the abstract? Uh, essentially, you know, compositions are solos like you're you're you know, weaving a, you know, story to tell and a composition. Solos are just like, you know, like a guitar solo is just a little snapshot real quick. It's like flurry of notes, um, usually. And it could be slower, like Celtic Cross uh, instance. But um, compositions themselves are not far removed from that because you're, you're creating melodic lines and you're just expanding them more than just that little snapshot. So, um, in the creative realm, I think uh, Morbid Angel would not be Morbid Angel without those solos, 100%. And I think those solos are very special, and they come from a high-minded place, musically speaking. Um, very intuitive and very, you know, wonderful. Um, whereas there is, you know, what it really seems is like they, they're just jamming out, and they're just dicking around, pretending to make solos, and that's the noise that came out, because they didn't know what they were doing, that chaotic noise. And it's just... 
it adds this layer is just okay yeah here's your you know the cool riffs you know that go throughout the song and then this really stupid you know like flurry of chaotic you know chromatic notes and for no rhyme or reason doesn't make any sense you know music i mean you keep saying chaotic no sense whatever but i keep saying that's entirely the point like that is exactly why those solos exist and that's exactly why they have their place in the the music of slayer like yeah it's not as diverse and it's not as dynamic as, as some guitarists it's not meant to be it's meant to do exactly the meant to give exactly the effects that you're saying fair enough you don't like it but i'm saying it has an artistic place within like the armory of, of slayer's composition i'm with shelley on this one yeah i i, I think that like trey azikoth is a more accomplished guitar player but i mean like I think the place of a Slayer solo, and I think this is intentional, is like similar to you know when you hear just outright noise being used and by, by like an ambient artist. That it, that noise has no uh, contribution to like a development of theme or a development of melody. It's there to create a certain ambiance or something, and uh, that's the same thing with those solos. I mean, that makes it sound really like intellectual and artistic but it is an ambiance they want to create just an ambiance of sounding like a very chaotic like stream of fire from hell is running by your face which might be might be kind of juvenile but i think that's exactly what they wanted well they were conforming to a type of structure that other bands were doing like when you look at early metallica there'd be a solo you know two-thirds into the song and Slayer did the same exact thing. It's just they didn't know how to do solos. <laughs> they just became all this wankery. And I understand they were beating a dead horse here by saying it's you know chaotic and no rhyme or reason to even be there. But I think Slayer songs would actually be better without them. Um, I think the the focus on the riffs would be more for the general public, and they'll be able to tell more about what makes you know early Slayer really really special if the solos weren't there. But yeah, I mean, I I don't. I don't think they're painful to listen to at all. I just think they're really stupid. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, any other final thoughts before we wrap up today? Tyler, I know it's your favorite band. Yeah. Uh, that Maybe not quite my favorite, but definitely one of my favorites. And so, on, on that note, any final thoughts I have about Slayer is, I think that regardless of where you rank them in the uh, Metal Pantheon, uh, I think it's undisputable that they have... Uh, had a massive impact upon the development of heavy metal, uh, but maybe in some positive and negative ways. But in the positive ways, a lot of what we consider the heights of death and black metal wouldn't have happened, uh, at least in the same way, without at least some influence from Slayer, uh, whether it's directly on those artists themselves or an artist that influenced those artists. So I think they deserve some credit for that, as well as credit for creating some of the uh, most... Uh, playful and uh enjoyable you know diabolic demonic metal of their time how much was possessed influenced by slayer i have no idea i think i read once that they said they were influenced by them very little oh really huh all right cool well thank you for listening um Shelley, congratulations again for becoming a father thank you very much cheers Yep, and Tyler, thank you for holding down the fort the uh, past couple of weeks. It's been uh, really nice of you so I can get some extra sleep and all that. Thank you. No problem, man. All right, and thank you for listening.
Sacrifice the lives of all I know this is a lie This old damn rock hell signifies all the demons inside 